Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Hey, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a terrific Tuesday morning show for you today. And we start with the paralyzing port strike in British Columbia. It continues to drag on. All BC ports shut down behind picket lines. The two sides seem very far apart. This is costing the Canadian economy a fortune. Half a billion dollars a day. Businesses sounding the alarm. Most provinces here asking for the federal government now to intervene, put an end to this. Not the B.C. government, though, uh, notably uh, saying let negotiations continue. Most other provinces, though, want to see some federal action here. I've got the Alberta Transportation Minister, Devin Dreeshen, standing by. Have a listen to one of the union leaders here, Rob Ashton, talking very tough here. Have a listen. We do not want the federal government to get involved in our business. We must force them to the table. We must tell them to come to the table. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a guy who wants the feds to intervene, but we're hearing more and more of a chorus here of people who want the Trudeau to intervene in this dispute. Let's check in now with Devin Dreeshen, the transportation minister next door in Alberta. Very pleased you could join us. Minister, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Okay, I appreciate it, too. What what kind of impact is this strike having in your province? So every day that this strike goes on, about $500 million worth of goods are being bottlenecked throughout the, the ports themselves of, of shippers, of containers coming in. But also there are trains that are parked all along the prairies because they're not actually shipping them towards our West Coast ports because there's there's nowhere to go. And it's something that... Everything from, from food to medical isotopes to, to everything in between is, is actually being clogged up. And we're actually we're very close to seeing food shortages on Ooh. grocery store shelves across Canada. And uh, I think it's something that obviously we, we as governments obviously respect the collective bargaining process. And we want workers to have you know, fair, fair wages for the work that they do. Obviously, that's important. But our country is also important, and we need to make sure that we can provide food for our people, medications for our people, and it's, it's not worth having our country held hostage by these delayed union tactics. Okay, how close are we to those empty shelves that you described? Because there's a lot of fear that there could be shortages. There's fear that people could lose their jobs. How close are we? Like, how long can this thing drag on before people really start to get to suffer here? So we're hearing everything from, from beef products that obviously are, are perishable, they need refrigeration, that they're getting close to that stage. Well, even if they can actually get to ship to wherever they need to go, they're going to have a shorter shelf life than, than necessary. So whether they're going to be disposed of and, and garbage 
on the West Coast or when they actually get shipped to wherever they're needing to go are going to have a shorter shelf life on grocery store shelves. That's where we're at right now. Uh, we're obviously on 10 days into this strike. The, the longest strike in Canada, I think, was over 20 days, so we're almost at the halfway mark. Uh, nine times the federal government have actually had to move in with back-to-work legislation. The Alberta government has called for Parliament to resume for back-to-work legislation to, to be on the table, something that was done just two years ago when the Port of Montreal went on strike. Yeah. There was a lot of federal government actions that were done to make sure that uh, back-to-work legislation was on the table, and it, they, they were on strike for one day, and the federal government acted. And here we're on 10 days into this strike, and uh, there seems to be no urgency from the federal government. Speaking to Alberta Transportation Minister Devin Dreeshin about the ongoing port strike, let's have a listen to the Prime Minister here. He was asked about this the other day. Will the federal government intervene to put an end to this strike? Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Trudeau. Let's listen. We believe fundamentally that the best deals are always found at the bargaining table and we will keep putting a a lot of pressure on all parties uh, to find that solution that I know is out there. Uh, But I also know uh, that pressure is mounting day by day and people are really, really worried. Okay, so he says people are really worried. I think he's certainly right on that score. He says that he says the government is putting pressure on both sides here, Minister, to get a deal. Do you see that pressure? Is that happening? No. Uh, the federal government, if, if they wanted to actually help again, if it's back-to-work legislation isn't on the table for them, they could also appoint an arbitrator so that work would resume on the West Coast ports. And obviously then at the table, it can be negotiated afterwards. But an arbitrator also would help resolve this so that work resumes and we're not having hundreds of millions of dollars and food and everything at the, being tied up. Okay, so that would okay. That's interesting. So, uh, an arb- are you talking about binding arbitration? Is that what you want? Yeah, the federal government has in the past as well uh, appointed arbitrators. Yeah. So that obviously you you would then have binding arbitration. You'd have you know the work being done afterwards, but but ultimately you'd have workers getting back to their job sites and, and actually opening up the ports again. Okay, we continue to hear more provinces calling for federal intervention. Let's have a listen to B.C. Premier David Eby speaking yesterday on this point. He was asked whether the feds should get involved, force an end to this dispute. Here's what he had to say, then we'll get your thoughts. They need to be treated fairly, and our hope is that all parties, the employer, the workers, uh, work hard at the table to get a deal because our ports are critically important infrastructure for all Canadians, not just for British Columbians. Okay, very notably there, no call for any kind of federal intervention. He wants the parties to work a, and get a negotiated settlement. Do you see any, Minister, do you see any hope of that in the short term that we could get a negotiated deal? Well, the, the, everything we heard was they obviously meeting last night, both sides. Um, they, they broke at 1 a.m. Uh, with no progress towards resolution. And as of right now, there's no word yet on, on any plans for resumption of talks today. So, again, it, it does not seem, it seems to be a lot of political theater, uh, but there doesn't seem to be actual any urgency to make sure that our, our ports are open because the Canadian economy and, and just people needing to eat and, and have food on their grocery store shelves, that's, that's what's important and should be important to all levels of government. How quickly could this get done like if if trudeau was to intervene here let's say appoint those arbitrators and and put work get open the ports again as you as you suggested would that require 
the House of Commons to be recalled for a special session, or could he do that through some sort of regulation, or do you have to bring all the politicians back to Ottawa? We, we think the federal government could do that uh, directly, unilaterally, have this arbitrator appointed. So the ball really is in the, the federal liberal court. Um, but we also have heard if they wanted to have a debate and have parliament resume, that is something that, again, has, has been done in the past, that they have recalled parliament. It's a, it's a hybrid system, so people can also vote from wherever they are across the country as well. But, but as I mentioned before, when, it, when you compare this to the Montreal port strike, weeks before because this obviously everybody knew that there was a looming port strike for, for about a month. And yeah. there was in, in the Montreal context, there was weeks of work done by the federal government to work with both sides to make sure that people understood that if there was a strike, there was going to be something back to work legislation or something was going to be done to make sure that we wouldn't have massive disruptions. And that was a priority for Eastern Canada. And here, when we look at Western Canada, there's not that same sense of urgency from the federal liberal government. Oh, oh, okay, so you're saying that, what, they care more about the Quebec economy than they do about Western Canada's economy? Well, when you look at one day of strike versus 10-plus days, um, I think it's pretty evident. Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate your time. All right, let's keep talking about the impacts of this port strike here. B.C. ports shut down behind picket lines. This has paralyzed big sections of the economy. You just heard my conversation there with Alberta's transportation minister. They are calling for the federal government of Justin Trudeau to intervene. The B.C. government taking a more standoff approach. They want the bargaining to continue. Let's talk about one of the sectors of the B.C. economy uh, that is very much at risk here, uh, the B.C. pulp sector. Joe Nemeth is my guest, project manager, BC Pulp and Paper Coalition. Joe, thank you for taking the time today. Yes, good morning. I appreciate it a lot. Joe, can you tell me what kind of impact this strike is having on the pulp and paper sector? So it, it's a real concern. And as each day drags on, it becomes more so. So, you know, in the first week or two of a strike, most pulp and paper companies can handle it because they have buffer inventories. As it drags on, it becomes a serious concern. Yeah, and can you explain a little bit why the, the pulp sector in particular is, is quite at risk here? Because I was talking to uh, a forestry guy I know on the weekend who was saying that pulp, pulp in particular, is at risk here, correct? Correct, and the reason being is the majority of what's produced in British Columbia is exported. And I mean exported mostly across the ocean to Asia. So a port strike is paralyzing. Example, when you look at British Columbia, you have mills on the BC coast and you have mills in the BC interior. All of them have a high dependence on Asia for their sales. And then one on, one's on the coast, some of them are almost 100%. How big are the, is the industry here? How many jobs are we talking? You're talking a lot. So to put it in perspective, there's about 5 million tons of capacity in British Columbia making pulp, and it's really northern bleach softwood pulp, which is used for reinforcing strength. Mm -hmm. The reason why I raise that is that represents 40% of the global capacity of that grade of pulp. So we still are the largest pulp producing region in the world. And then you translate that in the jobs, you're in the thousands of jobs. When you take direct jobs, it's a little under 10,000 people. When you add indirect induced jobs, so that's people that supply products and services to the mill or live in the communities, and you know things like barbershops, um, retail stores, restaurants, those are induced jobs. 
when you add that, it's a three to one multiplier. And now you're in the tens of thousands of high paying jobs. Okay. How long, how far away are we from like serious damage here to this industry? Like, is this an industry that operates on what they call the, the just in time model that you've got to, you've got to keep those shipments going constantly, don't you? Yes and no. So because yeah. you're, you're, you're transporting from British Columbia to Asia, you, you have a number of steps. So let's pick a mill. Let's say you're located in Prince George for argument's sake. So your, your, your pulp is going to come down by truck or rail to the port of Vancouver, where it's going to be staged, loaded onto a vessel and steams across the ocean. It takes about 40 days and gets to Asia. So obviously you have buffers, right? You have a buffer at the mill, you have a buffer at the port, and you have a buffer again on, on the customer's end, but it's only in weeks, one to two weeks. So to your earlier question, depending on the mill and depending on the supply chain, any strike that lasts more than a couple of weeks starts to have a serious impact. If you get into the months, to your point, then it can become crippling and it can have long-term consequences, meaning oh. the customers lose confidence in our ability to reliably supply pulp and they actually look to permanently switch. That doesn't is happen until it's a prolonged strike, but that no. is the ultimate risk. Is there any alternative? Like, could you ship this stuff by rail or truck south of the border to U.S. ports for export? No. No. It's not. Right. And the reason being is just practicality. It isn't yeah. so much legality and import and duty rules, although those are can be uh, real um, issues. It's just capacity, right? There's only a certain amount of truck and rail capacity in the, that goes back and forth to the U.S. that is already full. So for us to piggyback on that with our huge volumes would be very problematic. The other thing we looked at, to your point, was yeah. can you bring a vessel from the U.S. up to Canada? Maritime law prevents that. That's illegal. Hey, Joe, I just got one minute here. Do you think the federal government should step in here and intervene in the strike? Yes, but the question's when. And so it, it's a real tough game. I don't envy the provincial government. You want to let the two parties work it out themselves. But as it becomes more and more serious, they just step in. I'd be giving them a few more weeks and I'd be stepping in. Joe, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Pleasure to speak with you. Okay, here we go now with the police crackdown on electric unicycles. Now, you have seen the electric bikes and the e-scooters. These are the electric unicycles, also becoming more popular on city streets. But police cracking down. They are writing tickets. They are handing out hefty fines. Let's check in with Gabriel Kwok now. Gabriel is a university student. He rides his electric unicycle to school. He got hit with a big ticket. Gabriel, thanks for coming on. Hello, yes. Okay, Gabriel, tell me when you got, when did you get this ticket? I got my ticket back in February. Yeah, and how much was it? It was for uh, $600. <laughs> 600 yeah. smackers and and that was as i recall the, the the offense was riding without insurance right correct does that surprise you because I, can you get insurance on an electric scooter or an electric um, a unicycle that is no you can't you can't get insurance on an electric unicycle yeah so but you still got ticketed for it where did you get where did you get nabbed i got um on main street going up main street how, did like you pay the fine? Did, did you pay the fine? Actually, um, my ticket got resolved uh, a couple of weeks ago. I went to court for it, and the cop didn't show up, so it got thrown out. Oh, okay, 
Oh, that that's very interesting. Are you still riding your electric unicycle now? Yes, I am. You're not worried about getting another big ticket? I'm not too worried. Um, I've heard from a couple of other people also getting tickets. It seems to be the same two cops ticketing everybody. So I just, I just be careful where I ride. Yeah, now let's talk about what it appears to be maybe some kind of a, a loophole here. Because if, if you are caught riding an electric unicycle on the street, you are liable for that big fine for riding without insurance. But what if you ride on the sidewalk? Yeah, it's it's super interesting. So I was at this court case for um, another rider who got a ticket, and he was only found to be riding on the sidewalk. So the judge said that because of that, you don't need uh, you don't need insurance or a license to ride a motor vehicle on the sidewalk. So those two charges got thrown out. So his six hundred dollar ticket got reduced to eighty dollars. Okay, so instead of six hundred dollars, it was an eighty dollar fine for riding on the sidewalk. Yeah. Okay. What do you think of that? Like, does that mean you're going to start riding on the sidewalk now too? I think it's, it's, it's super concerning because now it's more attractive for riders to ride on the sidewalk, which of course is oh. going to be worrying pedestrians because pedestrians obviously don't want us swerving between them. So it puts us in a really difficult spot. Yeah. And how are you going to handle this? Well, do you ride on the sidewalk? Uh, no, I don't want okay. to endanger pedestrians, but yeah. if it's a lesser fine, then I might have to. Wow. Okay, because uh, do you think that you, you mentioned there was like two police, two police officers seem to be handing out the majority of these tickets. Are a lot of these tickets being handed out? Have you heard from other riders who have been ticketed? Um, I wouldn't say a lot. I'd say maybe one a month. Okay. Um, okay, G- and Gabriel. And riders in the downtown area. All right. Gabriel, thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate it. As Gabriel Kwok there, he's a university student. Uh, you heard him say there he got a $600 ticket riding his electric unicycle on the street. Okay. But if you get ticketed for riding on the sidewalk, he says it's an $80 fine. Let's check in with Bradley Spence now. He's the owner of EVs. Uh, electric cycle shop. Boy, they sell a lot of electric bikes, scooters, unicycles. Bradley, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me again, Mike. Okay, Brad, what do you think of this now here? So it's like 600 bucks. I think the technic, the actual number is $598, isn't it, for riding without insurance? Yeah, and it's $81 if you're riding on a sidewalk. Uh, honestly, it came as a, a shock to me, especially once people started getting these tickets, which happened maybe four or five months ago, um, th- actually three officers in particular um, started handing out these tickets and they seem to have a vendetta against us. Um, and it's been getting worse and worse. And this is the worst news for me is I, I, these are the products I sell and people are uh, finding alternative ways to getting to work or school um, in a more environmentally and a sustainable way. Less cars are on the road because of it. And ultimately I know that's what the city wants. So it's weird that these police officers are handing out these tickets so aggressively all of a sudden. Well, I mean, why is it weird, though? I mean, they're illegal, aren't they? I mean, they're they're not street legal. Well, for one, I've been riding these for about five years now. And uh, before I opened my store, I actually surveyed every police officer, every traffic officer I could find. um, And I asked them, are these illegal to ride on the road? Um, Are you giving out tickets for these? And every single person said no. 
One officer said, eh, you might have the odd traffic cop that gives you a hard time, but they'll just give you a warning. They're probably not going to give you a ticket. So it's unusual now that, and I opened the store based on that precedent. I didn't want to sell illegal products. Um, and now all of a sudden, three officers have been handing out tickets. And it could be because there's one or two riders out there that are riding like absolute idiots, just like you have bad car drivers. And those guys are getting a bad image for all of us. But they're I, when it comes down to it, electric unicycles, and a lot of people will be shocked when I say this, are actually safer than electric scooters. They're safer than road bikes. Uh, the reason being is you're on a single wheel. They're highly maneuverable. And a lot of models actually have a faster braking distance than a standard road bike. And we actually tested this and have it on video uh, in one of our YouTube videos. Okay, I think that might surprise a lot of people because I, I think when people see these electric unicycles going down the street, they, lo- they look dangerous, right? They, they do. And, and you know what's funny is people think they're always really geared up. They have like full face helmet, full body suit, knee pads. And honestly, <laughs> scooter riders should be wearing the same outfit, but they don't. So electric unicycle riders kind of know the risks of potentially being hit by cars and whatnot, and they gear up accordingly. But I honestly think anyone trans, uh, transiting on micro mobility should be more geared up. There's way too many yeah. uh, scooter riders not wearing helmets, for example. And you mentioned the braking on the electric unicycle. How do you apply the brakes on those things? Yeah, and that's another thing why they're so uh, so much safer is you the way you lean is the way the wheel will go. So it's, it very much yeah. feels like the wheel's connected to your body. So if you want to do an emergency braking, you can literally just squat, sit down. You're not going to fall backwards because the wheel is designed to keep you upright at all times. And it's very, very, very intuitive. So the second you react is the second the wheel reacts, where you don't have to pull a, a brake lever. You can never slam on the brakes, so you're not going to go flying over the handlebars like you would on a, on a bike if you slam the front brakes or a scooter if you slam on the brakes. So in many ways, they're a lot safer. And we actually have data against this because we see um, these products come back crashed. And the ones that come back crashed uh, the least are actually electric unicycles. So. Wow. Speaking of Bradley Spence, EV's electric cycle shop in, in Vancouver. Okay, so let's talk about this loophole here. So if you're stopped riding an electric unicycle on the street, you're liable to a $598 ticket. If you're stopped on the sidewalk, an $81 ticket. Is that, is that correct? Is that what you're, you understand? Is that what you're hearing, Bradley? Yeah, that's correct. We actually hired our uh, two lawyers to help fight uh, some of our customers' tickets because um, we wanted to, this is going to drastically affect our business, of course. And the lawyers found out that uh, you can't get a no insurance ticket for riding on the sidewalk. And uh, those anyone caught riding on the sidewalk, the tickets are either thrown out or it's only an $81 fine. So the police now are essentially encouraging us to ride on the sidewalk because $600 can really affect someone, especially how expensive it is to live in Vancouver. But $81 can be easily swallowed. So it's just unfortunate. I've reached out to the police officers giving these tickets, and I wanted to just have a nice conversation with them, but they have not responded. So so are you saying then that people who are riding electric unicycles now are choosing to ride on the sidewalk because the fines are lower? Many are. Many are, unfortunately. And we, we've been telling people since we opened not to ride on the sidewalk. We want these things to be publicly accepted, and we know uh, at first when, like, sort of, Regular road bikes were on the streets. Everyone was getting upset about it. And now they're generally well accepted. And uh, electric unicycles and all forms of micromobility are going through change right now. And um, you can't stop change, but you can try to slow it down. But in the end, I think uh, electric unicycles will eventually become part of the e-scooter pilot program. 
So are you encouraging your customers, therefore, to don't ride on the sidewalk, even though the fines are less, it appears? You're saying yeah, don't, so don't ride on the sidewalk. Trying, we're trying to give our customers advice on where they can ride and not likely get a ticket. So there are places where police officers, the majority of tickets are being handed out, like, downtown core. So if you hang out on the seawalls or any sort of, like, bike lane that's not attached to a road, the, our riders will uh, be a lot safer, but there are instances where they're still going to have to get on a, a road to get to their work or get to their uh, school. So we've uh, given some advice to our current customers, and um, we hope these three officers just stop giving the tickets because they seem to have a vendetta out against us. <laughs> huh. Okay. Do you think that – are there anywhere you can ride these electric unicycles actually legally? Like if you're riding them on private property, I imagine that's legal. Yep. Yeah, you're allowed to ride them on private property, and I guess yeah. it, because of the whole insurance thing, that's that's what it comes down to. Um, if they had insurance available for these things, maybe they would be legal. But I know uh, the the definition of motor vehicle is changing. They just uh, in Bill 23 of the federal bill, um, the the the, the uh, sorry definitions are changing. So hopefully, yeah. once that bill is fully passed through. Um, electric unicycles will no longer be considered like a motor vehicle, like a car, and they can be more considered as a micro mobility, which would help can you, a lot. Can you actually buy insurance for an electric unicycle? Like, you can't go to ICBC and get insurance on an electric unicycle, right? No, we've tried. Uh, and for the few people that have maybe got, got hit by cars, um, ICBC will actually still reimburse that person for the repairs or to purchase a brand new electric unicycle if they get hit. So they're still covering riders as if they were cyclists. So it's a very interesting time right now because it's a little bit like the Wild West out there. there there's no actual laws specifying electric unicycles are illegal, but there is a loophole in a way where if you're riding on a road without insurance, they can give you a no insurance ticket, which is, in, the, in my opinion, the $598 fine does not match the crime. So um, the tickets are just way too outrageously expensive, and we're going to continue to fight them in court uh, until the laws change. Bradley, thank you for coming on today. No problem. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about Canada's climate change plan now, and especially the plan to drastically reduce greenhouse gas emissions, achieve net zero emissions by the year 2050. There are aggressive plans to transition to 100% electric vehicles in Canada, for example. The provinces have very ambitious plans to cut emission uh, cut emissions too, especially here in British Columbia. All right, how do we do this? How do you transition off fossil fuels to switch to low emission energy? Well, there's solar power, there's wind power. Many experts say that's not going to be enough. So here's the question, is the answer nuclear power should we build especially small modular reactors you may have heard about these got daryl specter standing by to discuss first have a listen to prime minister justin trudeau here and he's asked by global news where nuclear power fits in to canada's future have a listen 
We need to reduce our emissions and we need to reduce our de uh, dependence on oil and gas. We're going to need more electricity and I know there are a lot of brilliant uh, uh, innovators here in BC and across the country leaning in on that. We're there to invest in a range of pathways so that we can make sure we're not just protecting the planet, but we're creating a strong and growing economy for years to come. But nuclear is nuclear on the table? Nuclear is on the table, absolutely. Nuclear? Is on the table. Yeah, and in the last federal budget, we saw plans for more nuclear power development in Canada. Should we do that in British Columbia? Should we transition a nucle some nuclear power here? Let's discuss with my guest now, Daryl Spector. Daryl is the president of ProMation. He is an advocate for nuclear energy in Canada. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Daryl, thanks a lot for coming on today. That's my pleasure. Uh, good morning and, and happy to be on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot for doing it. And I find this really interesting. And it comes up a lot when we talk about climate change and, and reducing emissions. Where do you think nuclear power has to fit into this equation in Canada? So I, I believe that uh, generally nuclear has brought, uh, played a role as a reliable low carbon source of baseload power. So what I mean by that is that if you're looking for kind of your uh, your overall bulk supply, uh, especially Ontario, Ontario is committed to uh, nuclear as one of that um, predominant baseload energy supply powers. Obviously, during different seasons, uh, in the winter, in the summer, and so on, you've got different demands. In the spring and fall, it's a little bit less because you're not uh, driving on the um, you know heating or cooling side of things. But I think that's where nuclear plays a role, is if you're looking for a consistent, generally reliable baseload source, that's where uh, internationally and historically nuclear has played a major role. What is the plan in Canada for expansion of nuclear power? Where are we at on that right now? From a policy framework, as you just, you know, in the in the earlier clip, you heard from uh, Prime Minister Trudeau that there's been a um, a more vocal commitment and an acknowledgement of the, the role that nuclear can play more uh, nationally. Traditionally, uh, Ontario has been kind of the nuclear powerhouse horsepower for yeah. the nuclear side. There's also a reactor, uh, there's a reactor in New Brunswick. Uh, there used to be a couple in Quebec. Um, but I think now what we're looking at, as you mentioned in the intro, is the small modular reactor potential that you're seeing a yeah. lot of those developments happening across the province and in various areas. And for different reasons, too, not just for power supply. Yeah, no, the small modular reactor is is a really interesting thing. And my actually, my brother lives in Ontario and he worked for a while at the Darlington nuke plant. And mm. uh, he told me he, he heard every Homer Simpson joke in, in the world. But... <laughs> You know, that was a big, big plant, and it was old. It has, it would have problems. It would go down for maintenance a lot. Let's talk a, bit, a little bit about these small modular reactors, because that's, cause that's really different. We're not talking about these big, massive reactors like the Homer Simpson-style reactors, right? Like, these are, how small are they? Well, it depends on what, there's a, a very broad range. I think the difference is that conventionally on the traditional um, domestic can-do reactors, power reactors, you know, they've been from, you know, call it 650 megawatts up to uh, almost 1,000 megawatts. SMRs can range anywhere from, you know, as small as three or four uh, megawatts. So they call those micro-modular reactors, MMRs, up to, you know, grid scale. You know, you're looking at, you know, 300 plus megawatts that you could, you know, the one that they're looking to build now at Darlington, the GE style, you know, is in the 300 megawatt range. But you can build multiple units of those. And the intent is as well, not just from an operating side. Um, you know, just with inherent safety features and whatnot, but you can get economies of scale. So yeah. uh, traditionally, when you build a large site and a large reactor, they've been, you know, capital intensive and schedule intensive and so on. But with the SMRs, 
the one of the value props is that um, apart from just operating technologies and whatnot, is that because of the scale, you get those economies of efficiencies from that point of view. Let's talk a little bit about the safety issue that you touched on briefly there, because mm-hmm. of course, nuclear react nuclear power has always been controversial from a safety point of view. And people know all about Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. How safe is the industry and how safe is nuclear power now? Uh, incredibly safe. Um, Canada is actually a, a global leader and a, and a well-respected leader uh, in terms of our regulatory framework. Uh, the, Candu, or the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, the CNSC, which is the federal body charged by the government to oversee and regulate the industry, um, is very rigorous, but also is world-class leading and is respected. Um, the framework that they put in place for licensing of SMRs has been recognized again globally um, as leading in the overall framework they've established, which is why you're seeing a lot of, um, you know, not just domestic SMR development, but also international SMR players looking to Canada as a kind of a home base for establishing SMRs. That's on the regulatory side. From an operating uh, condition point of view, um, the global body that that regulates and oversees um, operators, so so WENO, which is the uh, World Association of Nuclear Operators, Canada in the Canadian operating plants historically run, you know, in the top echelon of safety performance of those reactors, as well as the safety culture, uh, coupled with the QA oversight and human performance side of things. So, you know, really overall, you've got a lot of um, really powerful levers kind of operating in Canada's favor, both from a technical educated workforce base uh, a very strong human performance and safety culture, a very strong regulatory framework, um, and then just a, you know an overall body of knowledge that and um, oversight that ensures that mm. the, the plants are running safely and reliably. Speaking of Daryl Spector, we're talking about nuclear energy in Canada. Is that the path forward? Should we build these small modular reactors in, in British Columbia? Some people think we should. Now, of course, there's a a lot of opposition to these projects as well. Just taking a look, uh, Daryl, at some of the comments from uh, a major group in Canada called the Coalition for Responsible Energy Development, and they call these small modular reactors dirty and dangerous and a distraction from real climate action. What do you say to to that criticism, to the opposition? Uh, you know, I, I respect and appreciate the different sides, and, and I think in the industry as a whole um, understands, you know, at, at times the concern from various parties and so on. You know, frankly, it's it's easy to circle rhetoric around a topic, um, yeah. but if you look at the pervasive science and uh, and global acknowledgement of the role that nuclear plays, the advances in technologies and safety and, and so on, um, the fact is there's not a lot of options, especially in a country like Canada where we you know, we do have, you know, various climates. We don't have eternal sunshine for long days, 24-7, 365 days a year. So the question is, what is the overall, you know, prevailing foundational low carbon baseload energy supply option? So if you don't have large resources like hydro, uh, access to hydro, which, you know, isn't totally scalable as well and has its own environmental considerations, um, you know, what else do you look at, right? If you're trying to yeah. transition off of uh, carbon-based fuels and, and oil and gas and whatnot, there's not a lot of options as um, established as as nuclear. Now, that being said, obviously, there's tra- there's technologies evolving between carbon capture, um, you know, hydrogen and so on. And I think 
the way that the nuclear industry looks at it is we are a part of that narrative. It's not this or that. Is is what does the ecosystem look like, and how does nuclear play a role? in embracing and facilitating and catalyzing the transition to those, which the fact is are not established pervasively yet anyway, right? But there's a there's a roadmap and there's a pathway to that, that nuclear definitely plays a role in that. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about nuclear energy with my guest, Daryl Spector. Is it time to go nuclear here to meet our climate change goals? Let's go to Paul on the line in Burnaby. Hey, Paul, what do you think? Well, well of course we need to do that. Um, um, what people don't really look into is the grid and it costs more money sometimes to do the grid to get the power from, say, uh, wind power or, or uh, you know, solar power. And, but there's no way to get it here. Even site C down, there's big issues there that, you know, how, how do you actually get the power to, to where you need it? And this is where your, you know, uh, MSR, small molten reactors are. Uh, they have these new salt, salt reactors that they may be a big breakthrough. Chinese or got two plants coming online. But just in a little quick example, the grid is in uh, uh, Quebec. They want to move some electrical power, hydropower into New York State, but, but it's blocked because they can't get the power there. And the uh, environmentalists, to you know, to their credit or whatever, don't want the grid wires going through the forest because it does okay. create problems. Okay, I think that's an interesting point, Daryl. Could you comment on that? Because it, it does. I guess these small modular reactors, you could pretty much can you set them up pretty much anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to it, it's a to 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 a very good extent, yes, for sure. I mean, one of the yeah. the big value propositions of the SMR small modular reactor is the uh, you know the exclusion zone around it is is a much smaller footprint. In fact, I was talking to one uh, one guy over at one of the other reactors out of New Brunswick, and basically, if you look at it, the size of a Costco facility and the parking lot, that would be the footprint you need for an SMR, and that's one of the the great kind of advantages. Is, th- is that you can site these things close to remote locations. Right. One of the big um, advantages that they've been saying is for remote communities, especially on the, like the five to 10 megawatt size reactors, that right now where they need to like basically airship in diesel to northern communities that are isolating remote, you know, you could drop a, a you know, a, net, a 10 megawatt reactor in the site uh, autonomously running for, you know, 10 years or more with, mm. you know, low carbon, you know, zero carbon energy supplying that, that facility. So, that's one of the big advantages, as well as also using not just for uh, residential consumer power, yeah, but also for utility. So one of the things, that, again, one of the advantages of SMRs is they talk about siting these round, um, you know, facilities for process heat or process generation as a secondary. So you have a remote mining facility and you need power to that point where the grid doesn't provide the, the transmission of it, drop an SMR next to it and you've got that localized power for that application. Yeah. I mean, it, it does. I mean, it, it makes a lot. Of, it makes a lot of sense. Let's go to Kevin and Kamloops. Hi, Kevin. Go ahead. What do you think? Oh, hey, I'm calling from Vancouver. Actually. Kev, Kev, but, uh, Kevin in Vancouver. Go ahead. Hey, so I've had this conversation with a few people, and um, I am probably the only person that I know uh, that is okay with going completely backwards. I, I think if we're going to save the environment, let's go back to the horse and buggy. Um, you know what? I'm going to wear handmade shoes. And if we're not ready to do that, then we have to make some seriously hard decisions. And nuclear may be one of them because we can't keep doing what we're doing. People have light up shoes. They have nine cars. You either have (laughs) to power this or we have to go backwards. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, we just got a couple of minutes left here, Daryl. I've heard another criticism I've heard about small modular reactors, though, is that it's an it's kind of in an experimental phase that there are very few of them actually operating around the world is what what are where are we at what is the status of this technology right now 
So the underlying technology has been around, honestly, for like decades. Um, you know, there's been SMRs on nuclear subs for yeah. 30, 40 years. They just haven't right. been to kind of commercial grid scale, um, which is where a lot of the work has been done. The underlying technology, the, the fundamental like physics and, and reactor physics and, and materials engineering and all that kind of stuff, you know, there's a lot of body knowledge around that, um, especially the, the the various kind of research sites and whatnot. So from a technological fundamental point of view, it's not, you know, rocket science, so to speak. And, you know, it's still nuclear physics, but a lot of that's being worked out. Where a lot of the work has been done has been more around the regulatory side of things, designing these systems to comply with the regulatory framework. So what is the safety system? You know, designing for uh, the efficiencies they need and so on. Yeah. So um, in terms of like, you know, are, is this kind of, first of a kind experimental stuff it, it really isn't okay let's squeeze in one more call kevin and cam loops kevin you got 30 seconds here go ahead okay quickly uh so oh, what uh so yeah if it's effective you get like maybe 10 uh, like i was either you get 10 maybe 20 years of of good um uh, energy but then there's an accident like in chernobyl or off the coast of japan and even the coast of Japan right now is still putting um, nuclear wastewater still into the ocean. Now, my oh. point is, is that, okay, so you get 10 or 20 good years of, of, of energy. And then all of a sudden there's an accident. And now you've got an afterlife of 1,000 or 10,000 years of, of nuclear uh, waste and, and, uh, and uh, pollution. Okay, let's see what Daryl's... How, how is that beneficial or effective? Daryl, you, you have 30 seconds to answer a complex question, but go ahead. Sure. I think, you know, in and of itself, yeah, the safety events are, are obviously tragic, but they are isolated and remote. On the SMR side, the, the difference between these ones and the ones you've seen the accidents at the various sites is that they're inherently safe. So unlike those ones that go critical, if the cooling gets out of whack because of, of a tsunami or some other human performance event, SMRs that are being designed now, the Gen 3, Gen 4 reactors, are inherently safe. So if there is a loss of power, a loss of coolant, they shut down into a safe state and the reaction okay. naturally just starts to degrade. Daryl, we got more calls coming in. We'll just have to have you back. Thank you for your time sure. today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.